so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. As we've mentioned, Trillia Newbell will be hosting a special series beginning in February. Here's a sneak peek at what you can expect. We are called by God and saved by God through Christ. Then we should want to know God. And how are we going to know Him except through knowing His Word? You just focus on the goal. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? What is our mission? And we trust each other. We've been put together to do this. When we spend so much time only emphasizing certain gift sets for women, then what you do is you leave all of the women who are equipped in other ways to say either I'm not gifted or I'm not really a woman. Letting women know that I'm willing to listen to questions and concerns you have is powerful and encouraging. There is no such thing as a follower of Christ who does not have a contribution to make to the kingdom of God. Hi, I'm Trillian Newbell, and I'm excited to announce our series, Better Together. The series captures our desire to partner together as men and women in the church and beyond to advance the kingdom with mutual support and care. Better Together will address a wide range of topics from sexual abuse, leadership, women in work, women's ministry, and so much more. Our goal is to inform and equip listeners on matters most important to women in the areas of church, home, and work. Christians often disagree about decisions that should be left up to personal convictions, and this includes education choices. That's why this discussion between Andrew T. Walker, Nathan Lino, Janie Ortland, Timothy Paul Jones, and Dan Peterson is so helpful. Coming from different perspectives, they help us think through how to make the best choices for our children. We hope you find this episode helpful. My name is Andrew Walker, and I'm here to moderate a panel on the topic of educating children in a complex world. And this is a really challenging topic. When my oldest daughter was getting ready uh, to go to school, my wife and I had to make a decision on what we would do. And it caused quite a bit of challenge and conversation about the various options available um, for educating our daughter. And so we want to discuss education in a complex world and how we want to care for our kids' minds with all the various challenges that come with that in our culture. And to do that, I'm joined by a great uh, panel. We have my left, Miss Janie Ortland, who's an author and speaker. We have Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, who is a professor at Southern Seminary. Uh, Dan Anderson, who is the headmaster at Regents School in Austin, Texas, which is a private classical school. And we have Nathan Alino, who's a pastor in Houston, Texas. So my first question is for Dr. Jones, and you have actually written a book on various kind of educational models 
that parents can pursue. Um, can you walk us through kind of what are the, what are the main options available for, for kids, Christian kids, as far as their education? And I know you've done homeschooling and maybe something else along the way with your children. Talk about why you chose homeschooling. So first off, in terms of the options, the easy way and the way we organized it in the book, I think it was helpful for that, is public education, an open uh, admission Christian school, that is one that admits believers and unbelievers, a limited admission Christian school, which uh, tries to limit its admission only to believers, and homeschooling. But if I were to explain that to a parent in terms of their priorities and how they make the decision, I would actually arrange that a little bit differently. And I would do it in sort of imagine two different axes that are perpendicular to one another that lets us plot it on a graph. And I think there's one dynamic, and one dynamic we could make that left-to-right one, and that is the degree of openness of the educational choice to your religious faith. So you might have one that is a very low openness or very high openness to that. The other one, uh, that sort of up and down axis, what I would say is that is the degree of involvement of parents that is possible. And I think it helps parents to plot that out and to think that at best what we want is something that is open to their religious faith and is it allows high parental involvement. And I think that helps us not to be dogmatic about what we're saying because of the fact that uh, it may be in some instances you have a public school that is actually very open to their faith and is very open to parental involvement. Sometimes you may have a Christian school that may be open to faith but not open to parental involvement. And it helps us not to be so dogmatic about that choice but to really think about what is our priority. Our priority is involvement and openness to them being able to express their faith. Now, we, we choose homeschooling, and uh, we choose homeschooling for a couple of different reasons. Uh, it's, I should say it's not pure homeschooling because we tried that one year, and the only thing that we or our children learned in that entire year was never to do it again uh, in pure <laughs> homeschooling. We, that did not work for our family. We do homeschooling with a couple of different cooperatives, uh, classical conversations, and Highlands Latin School uh, the, as, as cooperatives in that. But the reason is just for a couple of them. One of them is all four of our children are adopted from uh, very difficult backgrounds, and uh, they were adopted older from difficult backgrounds. Each one has special needs of various types, and we really need to be able to tailor what we do to each individual child. Uh, the other reason is, is just because of the, the work that I do. I'm both a pastor and a professor. I want the flexibility to spend time with my kids because I like my kids. And so yesterday, I knew that today I'm going to be here all day, and then there's things coming up at seminary over the next couple of days. So I took the middle of the day yesterday to spend with my kids, um, and I couldn't do that if they were in a more uh, a more typical school environment. So a lot of it is our personal choice because I want to be able to spend time with them and given the schedule I have, it would otherwise be difficult. Janie, you, all of your children are grown. Yes. Um, and you told me backstage that you uh, had all of your children educated in public school and you're a public school teacher. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you made the decision, you and Dr. Ortland, to have your children in public school? And what was the thinking behind that? And what type of experience did you have? And I mean, are, were you pleased with what, with what happened? I'll start with your last question. We, we were pleased. I don't think, looking back, we would have done anything differently. That was back in the olden days. Um, <laughs> our kids are, are in their 40s. So um, they went to school. We sent them all to public school, both overseas when we lived in Scotland and then back in the States, in two different states. I taught in one of the school districts where they were for nine years. One child did go to private Christian school when my husband became the pastor at that church, and it just seemed to work out better if the pastor's kid went to the church school. It was better for our child as well. 
We chose that because it was the best option for our family and for our children. At that point, I needed to work full-time outside the home for us to be able to stay where we were as a family. And so that's how that worked out for us. Dan, you're the headmaster of a, a private classical Christian school. And, and we know that questions of Christian education can be really kind of contentious in a local church about some families pursuing uh, X, another family choosing Y. Uh, but so you, but you're at a private classical school. I guess, what would you promote or argue is the best reason for, for a private Christian school type education? Well, first and foremost, I really appreciate the comments before me. Uh, and I, I am product of a public school environment. Uh, my mom was actually a 30-plus year public school educator. So uh, one of the things I would really encourage parents to think through on this is I'm not necessarily so much concerned as the environment as I am as parents abdicating the responsibility to whatever environment they have them in. And that, that to me, is the core of it. If we are, as as disciple makers, giving up that responsibility and not being proactive in that arena, that's a problem. And that can happen in any environment that you're in. So obviously, my children, I have four children, my wife and I, and we are pleased uh, so much with being able to be in a classical Christian school because I think it combines some of the greatest thinking of the West with a Christian worldview. And so when I think about launching and being cultural influencers, I get really excited about what my children and the, and the kids that are uh, receiving an education at Regents will receive. Nathan, uh, I actually just learned a few days ago about a situation that you and your wife have gone through uh, with one of your ch- sons in the public school he was at, and you've actually chosen to remove him and go to a, a private option. Um, can you talk a little bit about using discretion, about what set of circumstances occurred to where you had to reevaluate your child being in a public school? Well, I, I think the starting place is, uh, you know, in the Christian community needs to be very clear that uh, when it comes to forms of schooling, uh, it is a wisdom issue and not a moral issue. Mm-hmm. There is unnecessary conflict and division in Christ's church today because we have made what should be a personal preference matter and an individual liberty a law for all Christians in all places at all times. So the Bible's starting place when it comes to the educating of our children is that it is a wisdom issue, and it's at the discretion of the parents in seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit, whether they're going to public, private, or homeschool. Obviously, because it's a personal preference issue and it is a Christian liberty issue, parents are going to be passionate. It involves our children. So there's going to be lively debate, and there should be. Uh, But at the end of the day, we want to remember that there is room in every local church for public, private, and homeschoolers. And as a pastor, I'm obviously passionate about that matter because we as pastors are responsible for leading the way and creating room in our churches for this to be a wisdom issue uh, rather than a moral issue. So the way my family and my wife and I think about it is uh, it's year by year. We have four children, a son and three daughters. And for us, it's year by year. We have to say to ourselves, uh, at this point in the life of each child, what is their current spiritual trajectory? Also, at this point in the life of each of our children, what are the forms of school available to us? Year by year, it just depends. I mean, some years public school is available to you, and some years it's not, or private. Some years it's there, some years it's not. Sometimes it's out of reach, sometimes it's within reach. 
so, so you just don't know. It's, it's season by season. And we've got to say, and what is the current condition of our marriage? Can our marriage bear up the form of education we're choosing for this year? Uh, what is the condition of the family on the whole? And so there's a lot of factors that go in. So we have three in public, one in private. They were all in public. Based on using the matrix I just explained to put them all in public school, but my son encountered in eighth grade, and again, I don't really want to go into all of the details, but he went into some significant personal struggles at the school that he was attending that forced us to pull him. And so Nicole and I entered a season of praying and fasting. We set a, a time frame of five days because the school year had started. He was four weeks into eighth grade. And we had to set a time frame to decide, are we going to homeschool, private school, because the public school option in our school district was no longer available for that year. And we just ran through that matrix. I just explained and felt the leading of the Lord to put him in the private school he's in. God opened the door financially, and there he is. So that's really how it came about. So this question is for the whole panel, and it comes down to the level of kind of the, the purpose of education and, and worldview behind education. But, but what should parents be communicating to their children about the purpose of education so that education and schooling doesn't just become a Monday through Friday rote activity? So, so what should they be communicating to their kids about why they're going to school? I think one of the, the important things is make sure you have a purpose for your parenting to begin with. Um, I think we need to go down to a more fundamental level when, before we even can get to that. And that is, what is the purpose of your parenting? And, and I know that we all live through some days when the purpose of our parenting is getting to the end of the day with the same number of kids you started with. I did not kill anybody today. Yay, me. And then this, it's all of us are that way sometimes. But the truth is, we need to have a purpose for our parenting that we communicate for our children. And one of the things I say to our children, there's just some phrases I'll try to build into them, that my purpose for you is to leverage your life so that people in every nation can hear the, the message of the King of Kings. Or I'll say something like, I would, when they say, what should I do when I grow up? I'll say something to the effect of, I, want you, I would rather you be on the other side of the world in God's will than next door to me outside God's will. And I'd rather have you in a grave in God's will than in a mansion outside God's will. That's what I want them to get. I want them to get that type of a passion for the nations. Well, when that comes to our education, then what that should naturally flow into at that point is that we should educate them in a way that we want to leverage their lives so that people in every nation have an opportunity to respond in faith to the rightful king of kings. We want to leverage their lives, that they seek God's will at all cost in that. And I, and I say all that because it is so easy to fall into the world's mold of the reason I am putting my kid in this particular type of education is success and happiness. And that is just not our goal. That is not our goal. So what we need to communicate to our kids in why we do what we do, and we need to make sure we're really doing that, is I am doing this for the sake of the nations. I am doing this for the sake of the glory of God. That's why you're in this. That's why you're learning this, for the sake of the nations and for the sake of the glory of God. And that should shape the what we choose in our children's education. And we communicate to them, this is why I'm choosing this, because this is what matters to me. That's a great input. I, I totally agree. The macro, the telos, the end goal, purpose of education is God's glory. And it is easy to get caught into the cultural environment of, especially in, in the setting I'm in, of getting them in a, a right college. For, for, for many, that is the purpose. That is the goal because that 
equates into, translates into a good job. And that is a myopic view of education. And one of the things I tell my constituency is, if, if we are a college preparatory institution, then I don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of a, of, a, of a school that is just training for the next four to six years of their life. We are about a life preparation. And when I say life, I want to define it as life here and now and life forevermore. And that's where God's glory comes into it. And that's the macro grand purpose. And the, the very word education means to lead forth or draw out. And so I think of anything that you all walk away with is an understanding that there is no neutrality in education. Whatever model you're in, there's no neutrality, but we have to have a Christocentric view of education. And it is in pursuit of glorifying him. And that, that sometimes goes against what the world says. So actually, Dan, I'm going to come back to you. You know, my impression of Christian education growing up in my context was where it's, it's where parents sent their children if they didn't want their children exposed to the world. So it was culture is bad, the world is bad, uh, and so we're going to retreat. What do you say to those types of accusations, that that's what Christian education is about, that it's anti-intellectual, that it's anti-culture, um, that it's about just kind of retreating into ourselves? Well, sadly, there, those models do exist, and that, that is sad. I've, I'm fortunate never to have been a part of one of those models, but I would say our theology is wrong, <laughs> is, is probably what I would start with. And by that, I mean the problem is not outside of us, it's within us. And that's, we need the gospel in and throughout education. And, and I, I, it was funny, last year I was asked to write an article on excellence defined biblically. And I'm so sad that I'd never explored that, that word with a biblical understanding. And, and what I came to was two patterns in Scripture. One, uh, in the, throughout the Old Testament, with uh, the, the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, it talks about she heard of the fame of Solomon and she went to find out. She, she had heard about him from far away. She, she had to go and explore. And what she recognized was, was their happiness. She recognized that their servants were happy and all these amazing things about Solomon's wisdom. And so she saw excellence. So I think the reality is culture can recognize and substantiate excellence, whether you're a Christian school or not. And lastly, in the New Testament, there's an inextricable connection between love and knowledge so, and thinking. And so when the Apostle Paul uses the word excellence in Philippians 4, the word actually uh, means it lassos all the classical virtues into one word. And that's a beautiful picture of excellence. And so when we think about these things, we are not at all anti-culture. <laughs> we're not retreatists. We are actually send, we're sending them in for a lifetime of service into the culture in which they exist. Daniel's another example of that as well. So, Jenny, my next question is for you. And as children get older, what advice would you give to parents as kids become teens and start thinking about kind of their longer educational plans? Mm-hmm. Well, I would start before they're teens. Start <laughs> when they're two and three and four and five and speak into them mm. the wonder of the world around them and how fascinating it is to learn about the world because that's how you hear and learn about Jesus. And uh, I would take it kind of, in our family, we took it in three areas. We took it 
just our culture as a family. We tried to expose our children to different kinds of education. Both their daddy and mama were getting graduate degrees while they were growing up, so they understood there were certain universities we were going to. We'd bring them there. We'd bring them to different colleges. We'd have college students in. We'd talk about, oh, I wonder where God might want you to go to college. That was such a good story you wrote. God's given you a wonderful gift with words. How's he going to use that in his kingdom purposes? So we, we do that culturally. We do it spiritually. I mean, where, it, where a child goes to college, that's really an important decision. And, and when you think of it after accepting Christ, we kind of put it in the area, if you have two more really important decisions, where you're going to go to school for college and who you're going to marry. And so we began teaching how does a Christian follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? We'd memorize scripture. We'd uh, do during family devotions, talk and pray together. And then financially, we had to bring that in as well because we had several in college at the same time for a lot of years. And, uh, and so we worked with them through that. And we required a certain amount of work. 10% was tithes. Each year, more percentage went to their college savings, and the rest was spending, and they were required to pay one quarter of their college degree costs. We paid three quarters. So that's how we did it in our family. Nathan, my next question for you is, so I, I, I threw the bombastic accusation question about uh, private school to Dan. My next question is going to be the bombastic one for you about public school. So there are a lot of critics of public schools who say you're you're handing your, your precious children over to the pagans, you're going to have your values undermined, you're just, you're just inculcating them in the values of secularism. So how do you respond to those types of accusations? And then how do you equip parents to be aware of the fact that they have to be cognizant of what values their kids are learning in the public square? I mean, these are issues where I mean, I grew up in a context where my parents didn't really have to evaluate what I was learning at school ideologically because I grew up in a context where the culture more or less shared the same presuppositions as my parents. Yeah, it's a great question. I just want to begin by saying, uh, while I do believe that it's personal preference, whether you're public, private, or home, parents do have a bent towards one, and mine is to public schooling. Like, if it's stock, I'm buying <laughs> I, uh, we're very enthusiastic about public schooling. We love it. We just really like it. So um, I, think, I think what parents sometimes forget is the scriptures tell us that the home is the nexus of discipleship, not necessarily education. So every Christian should be practicing home discipleship. Some should be practicing home schooling. There's a difference. While education and discipleship touch each other, they are not synonymous. Um, so uh, each parent must discern which form of schooling is the, is the tool that will facilitate my child and their formation of the Christian worldview. Uh, and so for us, it's public schooling. So we've had a great experience. It is very secular. I'm not going to lie. Uh, our kids go to school with transgender students, with uh, LBGT instructors. Um, it's, it's a secular public school. 
And I would say if parents are going to public school, uh, you still bear the responsibility of home discipleship. You are, in a sense, homeschooling in that you have a responsibility to unpack your kid's day, debrief, instruct, shape, correct, etc. So for us, what that looks like at a ground level is one of our core values as a family is we eat dinner tonight. We are all around the dinner table five, six nights a week. Uh, and that meal is not to consume food. It's to, it's to be together as a family and discuss our days from a Christian worldview. And so as the head of the home, I guide those conversations. I prod, I ask questions. Nicole asks questions. And we unpack the kids' days. We equip them. We train them. Uh, we urge them to understand that the academy isn't it. it. At the end of the day, it's supposed to be an open exchange of ideas. When the academy stops being the open exchange of ideas, something's badly wrong. So we've got no problem with uh, uh, evolutionists teaching my children evolution as long as the classroom is an open exchange of ideas and my children can raise their hand and respectfully interact with the instruction from a Christian worldview. So, so we are proactive as public school parents of making sure their schools are a place of an open exchange of idea. And when necessary, we go to the school and deal with the teachers and principal to ensure it is. And we've had some uh, interesting moments. My son uh, in second or third grade had a teacher for an academic class who was simultaneously the sponsor of the Green Club. And at their school, every morning after they do the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States, they do the Pledge to Mother Earth. And I pledge to honor Mother Earth, and she's going to look after me, and they do all this jazz. And so uh, the, uh, the sponsor of the Green Club happened to be one of his academic teachers and did a whole lesson on a, what we would consider an anti-Christian worldview of the environment. My son raised his hand, interacted with her. Her classroom was not an open exchange of ideas. So she was waiting for me on the curb at pickup time in the parent line. <laughs> comes over to my window, and so and we had this big old awkward public conversation. So, I mean, public schooling for a Christian parent is not for the faint of heart, but we love it. It's fantastic. It's exhilarating. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's really good. I'm, I'm buying public schooling. <laughs> my next question is for the whole panel, uh, and it's a pretty serious one. So what are some signs that the educational model uh, that some families might choose for their children, it, it isn't working. So what are some signs they should be aware of that, okay, we've, we've chosen this route, something's not working, we should do something else. What, what signs should families be looking for? Well, the signs we noticed in our son, just speaking from personal experience, that public school was no longer working, is uh, his personality began to change. He's very vivacious, outgoing, engaging of whatever environment he's in. He became very withdrawn, uh, slowly over time, even at home, disengaging from family time, dinner time, those conversations we would have. He was not engaging like he had in prior uh, times. We noticed it affected him spiritually. His spiritual interests began to decline uh, simultaneously. He was losing faith in the belief that God loved him. Mm. Uh, and he was becoming a shell of himself. So when we saw a personality change, spiritual decline, disengagement even from the family, we knew there was something, he was hurting very badly deep inside, and that's what led to us making quantum change in his life. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you asked that question, and so I'm, I'm so encouraged with the way you're leading your home. 
I mean, it, it, your, your barometer, it, that, that's very encouraging. I think for me, if one, one thing I would say is uh, the educational model is not salvific. So wherever you're at, that, if you're putting your hope and trust to fix your kid or to, uh, that they'll get a Christian worldview at a Christian institution or even in your own home, if you're homeschooling and you're putting a lot of, it, that, bec- that can become an idol in a, in a family's home. Uh, that, that's a sure sign it's probably not working or we, have a, we need a heart change. Uh, I would also say uh, a lethargic learner. Uh, that was one thing we, my wife and I were recognizing in our, our, our child um, a few years ago. And it was hard to watch because an educational environment should be vivacious. It should be cultivating a curiosity that goes throughout life. And uh, those, are, those are things that to watch for. And I, I love what you said with just the, the spiritual component. That, that's another Component. And then lastly, I would just also say, uh, if the academics are too hard, there, there, there's a reality in which it, it can be too hard, and it's not for the betterment of the child to, be, to continue in that environment. And that's, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, uniquely and differently designed. And that's a beautiful picture of the image bearer of God, that we bear his image. And, and so it looks different, and sometimes what fits one of our children may not fit all four of them. We have four children. It may not, may not be the best for all of them. So I think you constantly have to evaluate that year to year and ask yourself that question and, and calibrate as a husband and wife. When you think about how much time kids are at school versus when they're actually at home uh, and, and what they're learning, whether at a private Christian school or a public school, uh, it, it seems like there's still an urgency and a priority that we raise Christian kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We don't just take that for granted. So what should families be doing in the home? Not necessarily to, to counteract what they hear out in the world, but to where we're raising real disciples inside the home. What are the, what are the daily routines and habits and rhythms that you all are doing in the home or did in the home to see that your kids are being raised up to be Christians? One of the things is just remembering, and you've already hinted at this, you'll never typically do more for God beyond your home than you practice with God within your home. And that's just a good it's just fact for us to remember, that, that, that God has designed the home to be a home base for what we do. We try to do three different things with our kids, just real quickly. Um, faith Talks, a weekly family devotion together. Faith Walks, which is that every day I try to make some point of pointing to God's story or God's glory with each child each day, that maybe we watched a movie and I say, okay, what do we learn about God and his world from this movie? I might point out something in nature, but that's, that's that, that time each day. And then the last one is some sort of faith process, uh, which is for our kids, we try to work through with them with a weekly journal, that they journal their week and they journal how they're doing spiritually so they can see growth over time. And those are just three habits we've really tried to work into our kids' lives, faith walk, faith talk, and a faith process just so that they can see themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ who are growing and who are learning to interact with their world in ways that they notice God's story and God's glory in every part of life. And we, along with that, we made sure that we had one meal together every day where we were all sitting down, talking, and then ending with prayer and family devotions together where we could talk through our days um, it was so important for our kids growing up to have that time together. Not easy to get it, but very vital. I think the only thing I would add to daily spiritual conversations and 
family dinner time is do not underestimate the power of affection, kissing, and hugging your child a lot. It has a profound, if you just hug your kid a lot, just show them a lot of physical affection and walk with God and have spiritual conversations and family time, <laughs> if you just do those four things, it, it, you're going to win the day in their mind and heart. Yeah, and I would just say one is just pray for your kids. That's my favorite part of the day, tucking my kids in, whispering in their ear a prayer for them and for his glory because we're pointing them outside on themselves. And, and sometimes I'll say, hey, do you want to pray first? So I'm teaching them to pray as they end their day. And, and that Man, I, I love that, and I agree with all the panelists as well. There, you have to be intentional day in and day out. That's what Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, as we walk about the way. Yeah. Well, this has been so helpful, and thank you for sharing your wisdom. And would you join me in thanking them as well? Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. To keep up with all of our latest episodes, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and join us next week for a message about marriage and parenting.